Well, turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to be all over the place again, but we're going to have one home base. It's going to be 1 Timothy chapter 3. So we've been going through a little study here of the church. And we first looked at what the gospel does in order to make a church. That it takes sinners who are totally divided from each other and from God and unites them. Unites us to God and then unites us to each other. And we show that to the world by gathering physically as the church. And what do we do when we gather? That was the second week. We looked at gathering to worship. And that worship is an offering that we give to God. Not merely what we're coming to do is receive entertainment. And then we looked at for two weeks what, we've, what is called, not we've called, what has been called throughout church history, the regulative principle that how we worship is regulated by Scripture, and that that's a blessing to us, that we're not making things up, we're not innovating things, that God has told us how He desires to be worshipped, and that's what we do. And then last week we looked at the pastor-teacher leading in worship and his role in the church. Now we're going to look further today into the leadership of the church. Who is to lead? Is it just one guy who's supposed to do everything for the church? And how are all Christ's sheep, if that's the case, supposed to be cared for, supposed to be tended, as Jesus told Peter in John 21? God has not left a leadership vacuum amongst his elect, amongst his church. The church has not been rudderless throughout the ages, just waiting for leadership tactics to be developed by the world so that we can function as an organization. That's not the case. We didn't, the church didn't need uh, modern militaries to train leaders so then we could pick up tips from them. The church didn't need uh, junior executive training programs so that we would know how leaders should function in the church. And certainly we didn't need masters of business arts degrees to tell us how the church does care. This is what we have to get to. God does care about his son's bride. He does care about her and her well-being. And therefore, he's prepared men to lead, feed, protect, and guide her according to his word. He's given clear direction for the church to know who these men are. So you don't have to go, well, is it that kind of guy? Is it this kind? Well, not this kind. We have clear guidance and he doesn't want us to innovate or improve upon his guidelines for these leaders. We're to just to merely follow those guidelines, those characteristics, and then acknowledge the under-shepherds that he gives, not try to fabricate our own. So what we're looking at this morning is the dual offices in the church of elders and deacons. We're going to look at where they come from, who are they, what do they do, and then lastly, we'll look at the blessing of leadership, because leadership's fallen on hard times these days. We're going to look first at the origin of the offices, and that comes from the book of Acts, the birth of the New Covenant Church, and Acts 6, 1 through 7. So Acts 1 through 5, a lot of crazy things are happening. It's persecutions, it's miracles, it's revivals, and then now you have, a, you have several thousand people in the Jerusalem church, and now what are you going to do with them? So a problem arises in Acts 6, verses 1 and following. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church is growing and becoming big, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So you have a problem here of, of partiality, that something's happening to where these Greek-speaking Jewish widows 
are being overlooked in favor of the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows. Because all the and the twelve, verse two, summoned the full number of the disciples. So the whole church is summoned, and they say to the church, "It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables." Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, meaning the whole church. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He's the first martyr of the church in a couple chapters. Uh and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what we have here is proto-elders proto-deacons. Now, before we go any further, when we look at the book of Acts, what we have to understand is that the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive in everything that it says. Descriptive meaning that it's describing what happened. It's not necessarily everywhere prescribing what we should do today. Because how do they get the, the uh, 12th apostle, Matthias? They essentially rolled dice for him. We, that's not how we find elders. That's by rolling dice. How did, how did the first church discipline case go in Acts chapter 5? The two got executed who lied to the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't still be doing that either. So we see plenty of things in the book of Acts. Yeah, that's not how we should be functioning today. But what we can be drawing from Acts and other like narratives, like the Gospels and the Old Testament old narratives, is principles. Principles that we can draw out. Uh, they flow to us. Not necessarily the specifics, but the principles do. So the one principle that we can draw from this is that we see in the book of Acts a model for division of labor. We have these people, and you have particularly the, the, uh, the rub is with widows, the, the, the vulnerable, the unfortunate. How are they going to be cared with? The disciples, the apostles don't say, they don't matter, y'all figure it out. They say, this does matter, but we can't forsake what we are supposed to do, which is preach and pray. So something needs to be done. So we see a division of labor because the men, are they just any old schmo? No. It says, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, full of spirit and of wisdom. They, they can't be anybody. So we see here elders and deacons beginning to form in kind of a, a seed, you know, bud, kind of bulb version. Both of these things, the preaching of the word and the physical care of the flock, merit full caretakers. And, and you can't forsake one to do the other. It, it needed a second group of men. So we can see that here at the beginning. It's too much for one group to do. And we see Christ's total care for his church, physical and spiritual, soul and body, both matter. And I think we can also look at ourselves and see that we lean one way or the other. Like, well, let's just only care about physical needs. Let's clothe the, the homeless. Let's feed the poor. Let's do these things. And then we kind of neglect the spiritual. Other times, we go to the spiritual. Let's teach the word. Let's get into the scriptures and study and know and grow. And then we neglect the physical. We can clearly see here that the principle is that both matter. 
we need two groups of qualified, mature, spiritual men to minister to the church in this way. Both matter to God, physical and spiritual, in individuals and in the congregation. Just think about yourself individually. Have you ever had a spiritual or internal mental issue that worked its way out physically in you? I mean, if you think about it, like, I'm going to this interview for the job. Why does your stomach hurt? Why, why did you throw up? You're not sick. There's no virus. There's no anything. But something that was mentally affecting you manifests physically. And the other way around, right? Have you ever just been sick or in the hospital, just laid up forever and ever, and you just see your mental, your, your spirit just kind of start sinking? Th these are inherently connected. So God's not saying, looking at his church going, well, these things matter, but not these things. No, they're, they're connected and they matter to God. There's no ranking either that we see here of one better than the other. What we see here is a complementary role. Because it says in Acts 6, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, verse 3, whom we will appoint to this duty. So we see the elders continuing to lead, but these men have to be of good quality and good character. They complement one another, at least in principle here at the beginning. When we see something in the book of Acts and we're going to say that's what we need in the church, we've got to be able to find it in the epistles the letters that come after the book of Acts. And we do find elders and deacons in the epistles, particularly in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we had us turn earlier. We're going to read these quickly, the qualifications for the office of elder and deacon, because I want you to hear it all in one flow, and we want to see it all together. We could spend weeks and months just on any one of these passages that we're going to read, but we're, going to get a, we're getting a survey this morning. So 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, we're going to define that term in a minute, meaning elder and pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Elder. Now we have another elder qualification list in Titus 1, 5 through 9. Paul says again, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers or his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Those are our two qualification lists for elder. Deacon is similar to it, but it only appears once. It's in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified 
not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So like I said, we could spend forever looking at just deacons, just elders, and one of those passages and just one of those verses from one of those passages we're overviewing this morning. Now in those lists, we read them in rapid succession. Did you notice what was missing from those lists? Professional success. Marketplace acumen, business scavy, experience in any kind of executive role as a leader, wealth, status, or power, none of that's on the list. Formal education, notoriety in society, not on the list. Good looks, charm, the it factor, not on the list. Physical age restraints, well, we need to have one from each age group that we have in the church. No, it's not on the list commanding, inspiring, or, or the soothing presence. Not on the list. None of those are on the list. So are you telling me that a faithful, healthy, biblical church could be served by elders and deacons who are immigrants, uneducated, untrained, poor, short, fat, bald, and left-handed? Are we saying that? We better be saying that because that, that's what the list says. That's the qualifications of an elder and of a deacon. Now, they're the same qualifications, almost shot for shot, for elders and for deacons, except for two exceptions. There's only two exceptions in the whole thing. There's no difference in godly character. Physical and spiritual care for the church both require Christ-like character. Those are the exact same meaning there's a clear indication of the parity of the offices. That spiritual men making impactful decisions focused on different elements of the church, the spiritual versus the physical. And they're visible leaders in the church, so character cannot be below those lists. But there's an exception to the list differences. One of them is able to teach in 1 Timothy 3. Able to teach is something that an elder has to do that is not required of a deacon. And this allows deacons to be godly men, and God said that his whole church is not going to be served by men with the speaking gift. Elders will serve in that role, but deacons are not required to have that same ability, that same skill. Second exception of the list being uh, all the same except for two things, here's the second one, is Deacons in chapter 3 of Timothy says that their wives, verse 11, must be dignified. Now, why do you have a requirement for deacons' wives, but not elders' wives? That's a pretty, you've got to ask that question, because you think about it, Paul's likely unmarried. Jesus is certainly unmarried. So, other, are these men not fit to teach the word? That you can't have those guys serving. That can't be what it means. So the husband of one wife means a one-woman man, that that's his character. He's not a philanderer. 
but the wives of deacons are specifically addressed. Go back to Acts chapter 6. Where was the deacon ministry birthed out of? Who are they caring for? Widows. Widows of all ages, but widows, women without a husband. Deacons meeting these physical needs of vulnerable people would be blessed to have a wife of like character to serve alongside them in those circumstances where the vulnerable are being reached and ministered to. This is the only reason we could think of as to why there's a requirement for the deacons' wives and not one for elders' wives. Now, the qualifications then, this list, are normal, but they have to be held. Here's what I want to look at. A lot of times we look at these lists in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, and we go, man, those are super spiritual things. Those are big deal. I mean, to meet those, you got to be somebody special. Let's just go down this list and think about this for a babysitter. Must be above reproach, not a philanderer, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Do you want anybody who doesn't meet those to even babysit your kids? I mean, th these are not super spiritual things. This is just the normal Christian life. These are not extraordinary things of, of a supreme gifting and, and commanding presence and a mind that can memorize all 66 books of the Bible. This is just don't fight with people. Be gracious. Share what you have. Be committed to the one you're married to or committed to the biblical institution of marriage if you're not married. This is just the normal Christian life. But what we can't do is lower them. You have to meet these standards. You can, you can be below those standards and still be in the church, but you can't be below those standards and hold these offices. That's the idea that this is not, we're not looking for a flawless adherence because who's the only one who's perfectly exhibited these character qualities? The Lord Jesus Christ. That he's that, he's it. So what we're looking for is not flawless adherence, but we're looking for an absence of gaping holes, an obvious shortcoming, no, no obvious deficiencies. Losing your temper once, that's, a, that's being a sinner constantly flying off the handle that's a problem getting a little tipsy at a family wedding once that's being a sinner but getting plastered drunk every other weekend that's a disqualification so that's what we're looking at when we see these standards here and last or, or not lastly but almost fourthly as we look at these these character qualifications they must the office holder must always adhere to these you can become disqualified later in your service as an office holder an elder or a deacon you can't that can't happen it's not like being a college professor where you get tenure and then now you can just do whatever you want you can just phone it in you can never show up you don't have to do anything you got tenure they can't fire you it's not like being a, a, a police officer or a firefighter at one point they were all really skinny and could pass all of the physical examinations but after you have the job, you have a bare minimum that you have to meet. I went to the firehouse one time when I was a, a PE teacher. I drove the bus of pre-K kids. And I looked at those firemen, and I was like, I don't know if there's a ladder that you could get on. I mean, I want you pulling me out of the car when it's on fire, but I don't know if you can carry the hose up the hill anymore. This is not like that with elders and deacons. You have to always meet these standards. 
always. What we had a, we had, we have good missionary friends in Papua New Guinea, like in the deep, dark jungle of Papua New Guinea, like didn't have metal tools until Greg and Heidi Greenlaw came in 1998. I mean, Stone Age people, still to this day, no electricity, no nothing, three Bibles in the whole tribe. Three men who can read the Bible in the whole tribe. And because they taught them, this is your language, these are your letters, here is the Bible in your language and letters. I mean, it was full frontier mission work. And Greg had spent all of this time investing in this man. He was one of the first ones to believe the gospel, first ones to, to repent of his sin and to get the message of Christ. He really got it. And he had a lot of influence in the tribe. He was middle-aged for, for their life expectancy. And so Greg is discipling this man. He's pouring everything into this man that he has. And then when the, the church is beginning to form now, people are coming to faith now. The Bible's almost, or the New Testament's almost all the way translated into their language. And then that guy takes a second wife because that's completely normal in their culture, polygamy. And so then Greg has the choice to go, I put all this time into this man. I spent all this time investing in him. Nobody knows the Bible better than him. And he was going to be the, el the first elder in the church. And now he can't because he quit needing the standard. Huge, devastating blow as far as the, the human side of the momentum of the mission work. But the Lord blessed it and brought other men, raised them up in the, in the church. So we always meet these standards. And then lastly on this qualifications is why have these? Why have these lists of character qualifications? Lord, why'd you put them in the scriptures? Here's why. The men put forth as leaders in the church must lead lives worthy of imitation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. He says elsewhere in Philippians 4, 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's able to say, you guys in the church, copy me. That's a big statement. I mean, only insofar as I follow Christ, you need to know that I'm not Jesus, and that if you're walking on the path, and like we're walking in snow, and then you see my steps come out, and then you see Christ's footsteps go forward, you follow Christ, not me. But insofar as the shepherding element of the church is concerned, that's why you have these qualifications. If a man can't say these verses, then he shouldn't hold office in the church. If you can't tell anybody, come with me, sit with me, live like I live, read the Bible like I read the Bible, interact with people like I interact with people, share the gospel like I share the gospel, then you can't hold this office. Elders and deacons are supposed to set the church an example, and that example must be Christ-like. Otherwise, we corrupt the church, we lead astray, and we sully the name of God. See, they aren't merely, elders and deacons are not merely dispensers of information and task achievers. That's not what they are. They pass along their very life examples to the church. We have to, as elders and deacons, be able to echo Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, because our gospel came to you not only in word. We weren't just dispensers of information, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men 
not the talent we have, not the knowledge we have, the kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. That's what elders and deacons have to be able to say. Above reproach and blameless should come to mind when you think of any man who's up for, in consideration, one of those offices. So we've looked at the origin, the qualifications, now the functions of the office. How do we get deacons and elders in the church? I mean, it's not like like the stork brings them. It's not like they just get dropped out of the sky. I mean, how do we get these guys? Well, we acknowledge them when Christ gives them to us, no different than a pastor. Ephesians 4, 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. He gave them to the church, those gifts that a man can have. Romans 12, 6 through 8 also supports this. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service, that's the deacon realm in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What we do in the church is we acknowledge men who are already eldering, men who are already deaconing. They're doing that on their own, and then you confer the title on them. You don't say, hey, we have an opening for this position. Who wants to candidate for the role? You look for men who already exhibit those characteristics and already do that work. We're not looking for potential. We're looking for men who will do it even if they get no credit for it, even if they never have a title, even if they never have any recognition or any acknowledgement. They just have these gifts and they can't help but serve God in these ways. We receive only what he's given and then we pray for more. We always want more. Why would we not want more teachers, more servant leaders? Why would we not want that? So we pray for more, but we don't fabricate what we don't have. We don't make it up just because, well, it's the best we got. Oh, we wait. We trust Christ to build his church. So now we're going to look at the elder, his specific roles. There's three words in the New Testament that get translated or get or are interchangeable for the office of elder and pastor. So think of elder and pastor in the same. It's Greek word presbuteros, Greek word episkopos, and the Greek word poimen. Presbuteros is where you get presbytery, a presbyterian. Is where you, uh, that's the word that's traditionally translated as elder. Then you have episkopos. That's the word that's traditionally translated as overseer. Or sometimes, like if you have a new King James or a King James, it'll be translated as bishop. And then you have poimen, which is the word for shepherd or pastor. Those are all interchangeable. And these elders have three main functions. They rule, they shepherd, and they teach. So they rule, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preacher and teaching. So one elder labors in preaching and teaching. All elders rule. Prostime. That means to exercise a position of leadership. That's just what you think of. Ruling, directing. At the head of spiritual leadership, setting the direction for the church, which should just be the direction of the scriptures, exercising spiritual authority in the church. Secondly, shepherding. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, Peter calls himself, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a, particular, a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Here's the exhortation to the elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Shepherd, that's poimano. 
That's, that's, the, that's the verb form of shepherding, of, of shepherd, of pastor. Protect, care for, nurture, tending to Christ's flock, feeding, guiding, protecting, nurturing the church. That's the second role of the elder. Thirdly, they're supposed to teach. 1 Timothy 3, 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, we got to pause here and note that there's something different between teaching and preaching. Preaching is Greek word keruso. Teaching here is the word didaskalos. Preaching is heralding. Preaching is public declaration. Preaching is calling to response. Teaching is rightly understanding, rightly be able to portion out the truth and then to tell somebody that. Teaching is not so much a gift as it is a skill that can be learned, a skill that can be exercised. Preaching more so is, is the gift side of things. So this is not to mean that all elders have to be able to preach from the pulpit. That's just not the case. All elders have to be able to defend sound doctrine in agreement with the pulpit and also be men who know their Bibles so well that they can call to account the pulpit when the pulpit strays from the word of God. That's what they have to be. That's what the word teaching means. Understanding biblical doctrine and able to explain it and defend it. Like Titus 1.9 says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that, here's the reason, he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine. He can teach people who are willing to sit and listen and also rebuke those who are not willing to listen but want to contradict it. So the roles of elder, the rule, shepherd, and teach. The role of deacon, the diakonos, is a role of a servant. It's literally, the word diakonos means one who gets something done at the, at the behest of a superior. That's what that word means. And in a sense, everyone in the church is in the category of diakonos, but you have certain men who hold an office. Now, what we have to do when we consider the deacon is uncover the dignity of a servant, because when we hear servant versus teacher, we think one is varsity and one is JV. We think, now, well, okay, so what you want to do is, is you want to come in as a member, as a man in the church who has ambition, and then you be a deacon, and then you can be an elder. But what we need to acknowledge here is there's the dignity of the servant that we have seemingly lost. That, that there's something about serving that's menial, that's underneath it's not as important. If you aren't doing the, the quote, top job, then you don't matter as much. Couldn't be further from the truth. Here's the same word, diakonos, where we get the word deacon from, in Mark 10, 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Same word there as the word that means deacon, diakonos, and, and different iterations of it. In the church, in Christ's church, who are the great? 
What does Jesus say? The servant of all. What does he say further? The slave of all. I have to do this whether or not I like you, whether or not you deserve it. Jesus says, and that's what I came as. Didn't come to be served like we would have expected, but to serve, to do the job of a servant. So the dignity of the servant we restore and we see manifested in these office holders called deacons who are to meet felt needs. And for lack of time, we can't look at all of these, but write them down if you like. Felt needs in the church, meaning things like widow care. 1 Timothy 5, almost that whole chapter is about how to take care of widows in the church. We must not overlook the vulnerable. James 1.27, again, that's what pure and undefiled religion in God's sight is caring for orphans and widows and their distress. Deacons are to look towards those. You think of emergency actions. You think of, of uh, crisis response, disaster relief, felt needs. Deacons take the charge towards those things. And also, what you look at is, in the role of deacons is body life logistics. Details that need to be handled that allow the church to worship, to fellowship, to serve, and to evangelize. Deacons are doing those kinds of things. So what comes into that? Things like finances, things like these go into that because those are real things that need to be shepherded not just anybody can do those things but somebody who has those qualifications that can think through this budget think through this building can think through this this physical action that needs to be done or picking that needs to be set up or whatever it is towards a spiritual end not just we're the entertainment crew that's why you have these men qualified for that and then lastly we got to look at the blessing of leadership because talking about leadership is never fun today. We just don't have any respect for leadership anymore, right? We've been burned so many times, and we have 24-hour news cycles that just tell us only bad news. Have you ever turned on a 24-hour news channel, and they were like, hey, something awesome happened today. Things are good, and people are nice, and leaders are awesome. Never. It's always, here's how you don't trust them. Here's how they're messing up. Here's how they're lying to you. And, the, I mean, just think about what, what, what we went through recently that we as a people demanded to hear and read the transcripts of a phone call of our president to another head of state. Do you know how to talk to another head of state? Do I know how to? I mean, we don't have any respect for leadership. I am the authority. Well, I, I answer to me, myself, and I. That's kind of the, the backswing of the American experiment. We said nobody rules over us. We rule over us. And if I don't like you, then I can free to get rid of you. I'm free to reject you. And also, there's been plenty of abusive leadership that we've all lived through. Plenty of abusive leadership. People not handling the role well. You get men who have a lot of talent in positions, whether they be in the church or out of the church, but have no character. And that's like giving a toddler an AK-47 and saying, hey, go hunt deer. <laughs> Mostly, you're not going to get deer. You're going to have a lot of hurt people because we reward talent, that we listen to people and put them in positions of authority who have no qualifications, who have no uh, certifiable uh, expertise. But because they're good-looking or because they speak well or because of whatever, we put them in positions and then we get heard by them. So how do we then understand leadership in the church? How do we rescue leadership? Because we have to have it. What, how do we understand it? We suspect leaders today, but God's commanded that it be implemented and respected. 
And what we have to acknowledge is that God is going to hold leaders and followers accountable. Here's Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. Okay, well, what about them? Oh, there are those who are going to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So you see in Hebrews 13, 17, God says, I'm going to hold leaders and followers accountable. I'm going to hold elders and deacons and church members both accountable. So what we have here, what we're being commanded here is trust. That you have men in those positions who know people are going to listen to me. People are going to follow me. That weight should weigh heavy on any office holder in the church because I know I'm going to give an account. God's going to sit and ask me on that day, how did you care for this name and this name and this name? I gave them to you. How did you care for them? I'm going to give an account. But on the converse side, members or followers are told, let them lead with joy and not with groaning. That would be of no advantage to you because you're also going to give an account. How did you follow the elders, the deacons, the leaders that I gave you in your church? <laughs> we, we, all, we can't help but hear that and go, yeah, but what if? <laughs> what if the church revolts against me and they won't listen and do what I say? Or what if the elders and deacons are wrong and they're off and they're, and they're crazy and they're power hungry? Or it's yes men with a, with a pope and all these kinds of things. What if? Yeah, that's kind of what if. We ultimately know that Christ is the head of the church. The Holy Spirit, we're, we're entrusting that is, is, uh, is filling the members of the church. And they, they love God's word and they love his people. But if the leaders, if you fight for in the church, leaders that are biblically qualified, not worldly credentialed, then leadership is a blessing. Hear David speak of it in 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he, that leader, dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Isn't that what we all want? <laughs> We want a leader. We want leaders who fear God, who tremble before God, so therefore they don't trample upon the people. And when you have that, what is the, what is the result? Blessing. And it's given in agrarian terms, like the morning light, shun, the sun shining on a cloudless morning, rain that brings life and food. That's what it's supposed to be. Good leadership is God's design for his church. That's how he's seen fit to bless her. And he's given us what we need in these leaders. That's why, in part, there has to be a plurality of leaders. Plurality adds to the blessing because what we have to always factor in is sin. Sin in all people, particularly in leaders. See, all Christian denominations throughout history have always acknowledged a plurality of deacons. Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, Anglicans. 
all the way down the list. Pentecostals. We got to, who wouldn't want more servants in the church? So yeah, let's get a bunch of deacons. But the same is not true of elders. So those same denominations, minus some Baptists, see the elder filled by one guy. There was one elder in the church. Then Presbyterians, Church of Christ, Bible churches, and some Baptists, they've rightly seen a plurality of elders in the church in the New Testament. Here's a text, Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, Paul is the he there, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. The, the elders, plural, of one church in Ephesus. Titus 1.5, Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete. Crete is a tiny little island in the Mediterranean Sea that in the first century can't have more than one church per town so that you might do put what in, remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. See, God understands the frailty of man and our proclivity to sinful pride. And in order for the blessing of leadership to come like he promised, all the power in the church cannot rest in one man's hands. That is a disaster. That will always be a disaster. Either he becomes a pope-like dictator or he becomes the victim of mob rule. There's one guy to hate or there's one guy to put his thumb on everybody and nobody can say anything. No matter which one, people get hurt and God's name is sullied. Now, plurality doesn't ensure perfection. It doesn't ensure sinlessness. But having a council of men leading Christ's church, looking after the physical and the spiritual needs of the church, that's the best shot that we have under the sun, living in a sinful world, to be healthy and blessed, which is why it's what God's commanded us to do. This is why the character qualifications are crucial. That's why that's really all we have. If you have men of this character, but you don't have any financial wizard who can help make you file taxes better here in the church, or you don't have any kind of leadership guru who just understands how people move and function in groups, it doesn't matter because these men won't hurt you. And they will exalt Christ. The character is crucial. Men that meet those, those are the ones pointed toward being used of God to bless his church for his glory. So now you get to the end. Here we're concluding. So what? You're not elders. You're not deacons. Not everybody in the church is going to be elders and deacons. Why do you need to know? Why does it matter to the average person? Here, let me make this case in closing. These two offices matter because the gospel matters. Men leading the church represent God to the world. In a lost and dying world that is in need of saving grace of Jesus Christ. And the men leading must be prime examples of that gospel, of that new birth. They must be to the watching world. So we don't rush men into office. We don't treat the elders like the pastor is the CEO and the elders are the board of directors. And then the deacons are the junior executive. We don't, we don't treat them like that. We wait for God to reveal them, just like we don't rush people into a false conversion and then convince them that they are saved. We let Christ build his church, members and leaders, for the good of his name and for the good of the gospel, for the good of your souls. Treat the offices like coaching Little League. Somebody's got to do it, otherwise we can't play. <laughs> and we all want to play, so some, it's, it's your turn to do it now. You, I did it last year. You got to do it this year. 
It can't be that either. There's too much writing on it. Life and death is writing on this. Spiritual life and death is writing on this. So we recognize that the church is for God's glory and not ours. And if it's for God's glory, it's for the good of the nations. Like we read in Psalm 2, the nations that rage. And we're trying to convince them, no, kiss the sun. Come to Christ. Embrace him. But if our leaders are all out of whack and oppressing the people or weak and ineffectual and won't hold up to the word, out to the, to the world, then we have nothing to offer the nations that rage. So this makes the subject of leadership simpler to understand and so much more appreciated when it's functioning biblically. The weight of leading and serving Christ's church is heavy, and it should be, and we shouldn't try to lighten it. It is heavy. That's what it is. What stakes could possibly be any higher than heaven and hell for human beings made in the image of God? The weight should be there. So on behalf of our elders and deacons, I want to echo the writer of Hebrews and his request in Hebrews 13, 18. Pray for us. For we are sure a conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Pray for us. Because our conscience is clear. Like we want to act honorably. We want to serve faithfully. We want to lead graciously and clearly. That's our desire. But we must say, the writer of Hebrews, pray for us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you're gracious to give leaders to the church. Lord, and, and we know that there's many, even in here right now, who have been beat up, who've been thumped, who've been let down or, or even abused by leadership in a church or what a group that called in themselves a church. So we ask that you would give us something of a fresh start something of a reconsideration, something of a, of a looking to the of your word, praying for, fighting for biblical leadership in the church. Because we know that people matter to you. Your flock matters to you. And their physical state and their spiritual health, they all matter to you. And you showed us that all, all the way back from the beginning. But even you showed us that in the life of your son, that he fed people who were hungry, who he knew would hate him. He took care of people's physical needs towards spiritual ends. He preached and he healed. Lord, may we faithfully carry that out. Lord, may we be a church that, that supports, loves, and prays for her, her shepherds, her under-shepherds, her elders, her deacons. And may we be a church that is only led by men who are meeting these qualifications. And Father, for years on end and years and years, if any of these office holders in your church should fail to meet these qualifications, let them step down. Lord, let us have such a high regard for your word and for your church and for your glory that we cling to nothing out of pride. Lord, may that be true of me that I would not desire my own glory, position, or paycheck above your glory and your honor and the good of your church filled with your people. 
May we always know, may it be always true of Faith Bible Church that we know that elders and deacons are not kings and rulers who answer to no one, that we are going to give an account for names, real people, actual names. And may we shepherd with great fear and trembling, but also with great courage and boldness and warmth because you have not left us without instruction. You have not left us without examples, even in church history, let alone the scriptures that are inerrant. And we ask that you would make your grace perfect in our weakness and that you would lead us into greater faithfulness, greater purity, greater holiness, but greater usefulness as we seek to be a light, a blinding light in a dark world that is dying and in need of the Savior. We ask all of this in that Savior's name.